Now, there's only four ingredients, is that right? Pretty much. So you've got milk and cream, depending on how you make it. Then you've got sugar, lots of sugar. I need to add that the creme caramel is a sometimes food. (laughs) (laughs) Not when you look like me. It's a dessert every night food. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Pryor. Enchanté. Fabulously Delicious is the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, a French dish, an ingredient, or French cuisine cooking technique, and we learn about it from a special guest who's an expert on that topic. My guests are all about French food. Either they cook it, they produce it, talk, write, or photograph it. But above all, they love it. Creme caramel. Is it French, Spanish, English even? Well, we're going to find out the answer to that question and so much more on today's episode of Fabulously Delicious. And who better than an Aussie Francophile with family that ran French restaurants during her childhood, who now writes guidebooks of Paris and other European cities to tell us all about the creme caramel. So sit back, relax, enjoy a glass of wine, coffee, tea, or if you're listening whilst travelling on your way to work, turn up the volume as you're in for a delicious episode of Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app, everybody, and let's get chatting with Ruby Bookaboo. Ruby Bookaboo, thank you for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. It's nice to be here. Hi. I'm very excited. Ruby, before we talk about all things creme caramel, I want our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. And one of your many passions in life is dancing. It is. I'm a bit of a tap evangelist, you could say. Ooh, what's a tap evangelist? (laughs) Someone that's obsessed with tap dance and thinks that it will make the world better the more people tap dance. (laughs) Is tap what you got into first? Well, I was uh, was more into music and theatre, so I played piano from a very early age and then moved on to clarinet and saxophone. But we also did uh, lots of theatre. There was always theatre around at home out at school everywhere there's always theater and plays and and radio plays or anything that's entertaining people <laughs> and then i kind of like the idea of tap dancing but i do believe that a third of the population if not half of the population of the planet somehow somewhere in the back of their mind dreams of being a tap dancer right i think you could be some to something there i used to be a ballroom dancer mm. would you believe and I was in the Pan Pacifics once when I was, I did one of my ballroom dancing medals in the Pan Pacifics, which listeners, if you know, is the, is the contest that's in Strictly Ballroom. Yes. yes. So I had my leotard on with my lovely um, partner, who my mother thought was going to be my girlfriend. <laughs> Unfortunately, no, mum, that never happened. What was that Australian group that was the tappers that and is. they did the, that's it, the tap dogs. Are they still around? They are. And that was some of my teachers. I went to, I kind of started, uh, I didn't really, I kind of snuck into a few classes at high school, but I couldn't really ask if I could do tap because I was already doing clarinet and band and taekwondo and piano and maybe probably ballet and uh, 17 other activities at the time. So I kind of snuck into class a few times with my friend. Um, and then when I went to university, I was living with a choreographer uh, and I started tap dancing and we just kind of practiced and would go shopping down the down the aisles in Melbourne uh, and then got got obsessed with it. Uh, just, I don't know, there's so many 
good things about tap. So I was performing a lot. So I would do it, but because I was in a theatre kind of environment, uh, I would do it in a cabaret scene. So I used to do like a, I had a great gig tap dancing on the bar of the Spiegel tent after the click. So they had the click. They have big parties and they'd have different pop up performances. And so all I'd have to do is jump up, tap dance for two minutes, and then pop off the bar in a spotlight. And it was great. That was a great, you know, pretty good gig. <laughs> the thing is about tapping when people watch it, it can't. It, it, there's something so dynamic about it. It wakes you up. You can't kind of go to sleep watching tap, or you'd have to be really exhausted. <laughs> you like there's some type of any primal energy that wakes you up, and then you know the actual when you're dancing it. There's so many benefits because during I normally just perform. Like I did lots of cabarets, and uh, and I was in a couple of a couple of groups and and uh clips and stuff but during covid i started teaching why not i couldn't perform and i love it i love it so i still have lots of students uh this morning i had a student from australia and they're from like seven to 70 years old and it's fabulous because i don't think you need to tap to become a tap dancer you can get so many benefits out of tap it's like dementia prevention (laughs) all these because it's simple it's uh you there's patterns at patterns you're identifying patterns and most importantly you're playing out those patterns in your body is tap hard on your body you know like you see ballerinas and people like that often say that it's hard on their body is tap the same if you have a good technique it shouldn't be because we dance in a plie so you've got this kind of suspension happening um so it's not like flamenco or irish dancing where you're slamming your foot into the ground and your knees are taking all the the tension and the pressure. You've written Architectural and Art Lovers Guides to Paris. Why did you decide to do guides? So I've always been doing shows and and theatre and and tap, but I'm also also a a journalist. So uh, I was an arts journalist to begin with, so I was mainly doing uh, culture. So I spent all my 20s, like, spending... At the time, I thought it would no- was normal if you're interviewing an artist, like a, a singer or something, to go to the bat to see the band and then spend three hours afterwards with them, interviewing them for three hours and then hanging out with them all night. I thought that was kind of normal because it was like a rock and roll <laughs> journalist. And then I remember going to Venice Film Festival and they're like, so you've got six minutes with Sophia Coppola. I was like, what am I going to ask for in six minutes? I walked down I went so quickly. I finished in four minutes. It was just a whole different thing. But anyway, so my my history is is uh, is culture journalism. Like reviews. I've reviewed everything and anything. This was a really lovely book to to do the Art Lovers Guide to Paris. And I was back in Australia when I got commissioned, so it was a really nice time to come back and just really plunge into the world of art. And then the second book is the Architecture Lovers Guide to Paris, and that was really fun to do. Also, and it was just good to wander around Paris. And rediscover it. Like I've I've been here on and off for a couple of decades, but you just open your eyes and you walk around and suddenly you you can see a whole new city just from the, you don't need to go to the, you know, of course there's the big monuments and the Sacre-Cœur and the Eiffel Tower and Notre Dame and and so forth, but there's thousands and thousands and thousands of monuments. Well, Speaking of that, where's your – so if we're going to have one favourite place, where would be your favourite place for architecture in Paris? So this is just something that you might see as you happen to be walking. You wouldn't necessarily go there. Love that. Notice it. And I, I have actually history for it. 
a little story on it. I was walking. It was a grey day. I was cold. I was like, it's like, no, it, I think the sun had just come out and I'm like, get out there while I can. It was freezing. My hands were cold. I'm like, just do it. And I was taking the photos and I was, I don't know, it didn't feel great. And then I, it was in central Paris and I turned around and it was the Chatelet, the Theatre de Chatelet. And in the middle of it is the Fontaine du Pamier. And it's an 1808 Roman style column. So it's celebrating uh, Napoleon's victory in the Place de Châtelet. And on the top, so there's a, there's, a, there's a column and on the top is a winged victory angel. And I was just taking its photo and suddenly I, don't, I had this connection with it. It was this, I was looking up, there was this golden winged angel looking down at me. It was glinting off the sun. I kind of had this moment of, of connecting with the artist, connecting with this angel and it and I just felt that I was in the right place at the right time and connected to something in the Paris past. And I just had a moment. <laughs> There's just so many pieces of architecture and art that, that you can actually they can touch you and they can change the way you're you're feeling about the world. They can change the way you're feeling about life if you let them. What would be an art place that people might not know about that they should be checking out? Um, I like. Uh, I mean, it's fairly well known, but I always encourage people to go to the Musée de Montmartre. Uh, and in the Art Lovers Guide to Paris, there's a Montmartre walking tour. Uh, and it's just a really lovely. It's, it's Ren, Renoir used to live there with other artists. And it's just a very lovely uh, house and or kind of villa house on the top of Montmartre, not far from Jacques Coeur. And you can wander out into the garden. They've got a replica of the Balançoise swing from the painting uh, and there's a vineyard underneath so there's kind of this waft, this heady waft of, of grapes in the air and you can see the old Montmartre, the windmills and, and, and then you see all the cabarets, the ganguettes and it gives you a bit of history of um, Montmartre uh, which really changed the way that you know, that it was the cradle of Impressionism and then later of Modernism changed the way that people saw art and maybe reality forever. So, you know, it's a very important museum, but it's very picturesque and beautiful and soft and it's a, it's a place that I would encourage people to go. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. If you're enjoying listening to this episode, then please share it around with your friends, colleagues, family. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, be it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Oh, and leave a review, a five-star one. That would be great. Don't forget, share me around with your friends and family. As I say, love to be shared around. Now, let's get back to more Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Your mum is Australian uh, and your dad is Algerian. So I wanted to ask, before we talk about their food history, how did they meet? There's, there's not many, there wouldn't have been many Algerians in Australia uh, in that time. The Canadian embassy was closed to lunch in Paris when my dad went to get his visa and the Australian one was open. <laughs> what was that? I know, I hate the cold, so I made a good decision. <laughs> So what? So he, he just decided to go to Australia. He had to emigrate somewhere, and it was trendy to go to uh, Canada at the time. So and you know Australians like yeah come over so we did, <laughs> and then so my mum was teaching uh, 
English as a second language to his friends and his English was terrible. And they said, oh, we've got a very cool teacher. And he didn't go to class because he doesn't like language, but he met my mum. Oh, that's lovely. They actually ran French or they run French restaurants in Australia. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So when I was a kid, oh, before I was born, they had one in Bondi. Oh, actually, when when they met, they had one in Bondi called La Terrasse on Wall Street. Uh, and then they had one, uh, the Tower French restaurant, which was in North Sydney. And that's where my mum would used to make the desserts. So she'd make it. Well, I want to talk about that a little bit later, but I, what was life like for you growing up in the food and like professional kitchens? Were you there? Did you go to work with them or meet them after school and things like that? Uh, well, mum was teaching. So she was teaching and making the desserts for the, for the restaurants. Uh, and then dad was at the restaurant. So we'd go, yeah, we'd go there. I, 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 would go there, would pop in, um, would, you know, would take the desserts. I mean, I wouldn't spend half my childhood there or anything, but we would often pop in. And then, you know, it was the kind of occasionally if we stayed late, this is where you put two chairs together and you kind of curl up as people talk. And I really like, even in a family situation, I really remember the, the feeling of, I, of, of thinking you're not missing out, you don't have to go to bed. <laughs> Uh, but you're having a little nap, <laughs> but you can hear people around you being social, and 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 that's when I was, you know, I could. So people were talking French and English, and some people were talking Italian, and, and that was a really nice feeling to be involved in something without, you know, without being sent off to bed, and feeling that you're part of the party without actually having to be active. <laughs> You've told me before that uh, your dad makes fabulous sauces. Uh, I've always said that the saucier is the most important job in the kitchen. Um, I love a good sauce. What would be his best sauce that he makes? He just does these sauces that sometimes it takes like a couple of days to make. Uh, And they're mainly sauces that go with meat dishes. Uh, and he uses the herbs from the garden. And he would used to say if I'd come home from studying, if I was, uh, if I, or if, when I was like at university and then I'd come home for the weekend or something, uh, and I was obviously kind of exhausted and running around at all like a maniac. And he'd say, So do you need to work after you eat this meal or can you sleep and rest? And I'm like, I can sleep. He's like, Uh huh. Well, in that case, I'll give you this. <laughs> it would be like a sauce. Uh, uh that would just you have a sip as soon as you as soon as you taste it all your troubles disappear oh wonderful you just feel like this well like it, it, it just vanishes <laughs> like and your stress vanishes and everything vanishes uh and at one of them he said i don't know what i did i combined a couple of things and it makes you sleep directly <laughs> did both your parents cook at home or were they too tired by the time they got home from your dad cooking in the restaurants so a bit different things. So like mum would be like the traditional kind of spaghetti bolognese and homemade hamburgers and uh, aubergine au gratin was really delicious and like a courgette tart and, uh, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, and then dad would do more kind of meaty stuff. 
Are you coming to France soon for a holiday or weekend away? Or do you have plans to do so or dreaming of it, but you just don't know what to do? Just overwhelmed with all the options or been so many times before that you just want a new take on France and places to go, people to see. Well, I can help you out with that. Jump on my website, andrewpryorfabulously.com and check out my itinerary service. For just 75 euro, you can book in a 45 minute Zoom call with me. That's right, live with me directly. And then once we've discussed what you want to do, how long you want to come for, etc., etc., then I can curate a fabulous itinerary personalized just for you. I'll help you with places to go, things to do, hidden secrets, tips from locals that only they would know, restaurants, food recommendations, as well as help with any bookings, etc., that you might need during your stay. So, what are you waiting for? Go to andrewpryorfabulously.com, itinerary services, and book in your call with me now. On to today's topic, the creme caramel. Uh, what is a creme caramel, for those of us who might not know? So it's basically a baked custard dessert with a caramel topping, a soft, smooth caramel topping. And caramel sauce, uh, and yeah, with the caramel sauce on it, and it's very delicate. Okay. Now, it's not like a creme brulee, is it? What's the difference between like it? Because it's, it's the same sort of ingredient. It's the same ingredient. Creme brulee, uh, it has kind of like a, a harder toffee on the top that you blowtorch at it blowtorch it at the top so it, it's it, so you get that satisfying thing where you get the spoon and you tap the spoon to crack the top before you eat it and it also has more egg uh, yolks uh, and more cream some current caramels don't have cream some do but the creme brulee does have cream so it makes it denser the creme the, the creme caramel is lighter and kind of fluffier and finer uh, and it's the creme brulee is more more heavy more dense with the kind of toffee hard toffee top now there's only four ingredients is that right what are they pretty much so you've got uh, milk uh, milk and cream depending on how you make it uh, then you've got sugar lots of sugar I had I need to add that the creme caramel is a sometimes food <laughs> <laughs> Not when you look like me. It's a dessert every night food, Ruby, when you look like me. I've been making it in the last week. I've made three times. And I've had to, I get up every morning, do an hour of exercise to accomplish extra sugar. I kid you not. But that's fine. <laughs> milk, sugar. Milk, milk, sugar, uh, eggs, and, uh, and vanilla. And a little bit of water. So your mum used to make it. So can you tell us what's her recipe for a creme caramel? Is it the same as yours? Yes, pretty much. Yes. Well, I've, yes. So uh, you have a, you need a cup of cream, a cup of milk, uh, three, five eggs, three of which you're using the whole eggs to just the egg yolks. So we're going to save those two egg whites for a pavlova, pop them in the Ziploc bag and put them in the fridge freezer. I was trying to think of what I should save them for. Now I know. I always save mine for a pavlova because also pavlovas are, per, are, are even better. You get more volume when they're older the uh, egg white is. So by putting them in the freezer and then taking them out and defrosting them and then using them the next day, you've like effectively like they're fantastic and they will really, they'll like 
be really huge. I've made a pavlova for 10, 12 people with leftovers on four or five egg whites. Oh, wow. Because I've had them in the freezer. I might have also been that I got the measurements wrong, but who knows? (laughs) So going back to your recipe. (laughs) I had a pavlova at a great restaurant around the corner that I've just discovered, Um, and it didn't have passion fruit. Oh, it's too expensive here, Ruby. It's too expensive. I didn't feel like a pavlova without passion fruit. I'm not paying two euro for one passion fruit because I've paid two euro for one passion fruit before and then opened it and got hardly any passion out of my passion fruit. I don't know if that's what you call it. Yeah. <laughs> do you, what, is, what is it? What do you get out of the passion fruit? You get the passion fruit. Yes. No one's ever said I didn't get any passion out of my pavlova until now. Um, my passion fruit until now. Ruby, sorry, your recipe. Let's get back to yeah, that. Sorry, More so a cup of sugar, a cup and a half of sugar, a cup of milk, a cup of cream, five eggs in total, uh, two which you're just using the yolks, and a vanilla powder. Uh, so you preheat your oven at 160. Uh, and make sure it's 160 because the other day I put it too high by mistake. So make sure it's 160. And then you get uh, your sugar and over low heat you dissolve the you dissolve it with a little bit of water. Sometimes half cup, sometimes less, just dissolve it. And then you bring it to the bring it to the boil till it turns, uh, till it caramelizes. You have to keep watching it because you have to make sure that it goes brown, golden, but not black because otherwise it will get bitter. Then you, uh, you, you put it into either one cer- uh, ceramic dish or six little ramekins as you prefer, if you're doing individual ones or one for one. Uh, and then in the meantime, you do uh, milk. You put the milk with the cream on the stove or the milk by itself if you don't want cream, but it makes it extra yummy, uh, with the vanilla. And you can get a vanilla pod, open it and scrape out the middles and put it in. Or you could also just put in uh, half a teaspoon of or a teaspoon of vanilla essence if you prefer. But I use the vanilla pod. Uh, so then, so you scold that and then leave it to to cool a little bit. And in the meantime, you mix your eggs. So three full eggs and two egg yolks. So you mix them up with half a cup of sugar. Uh, and once the milk is, oh, so so once the milk is cooled, you pour that into that mix. Uh, when the toffee's when the caramel sauce is ready, so when it's golden, not black, but but still got a nice golden. Uh, color you pour it into the ramekins at the bottom so it's got a little layer and you just leave that for a while 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 the other mixture cools a little bit and then you just sieve the custard mixture through uh into into the pots individually and you put it in a bain-marie so it's like a water bowl so you've got a larger ramekin with hot water and you put the you put it in a you put them in that and you put it into the oven and you wait. If it's smaller ramekins, it's 25 minutes. And if it's large, it's going to be about 45 minutes. But you've got to uh, just keep an eye on it because you don't want it to be, you want it to be cooked properly and you don't want it to be burnt. So once they're ready, just put a knife in it. It's like a cake. If it comes out clean, it should be ready. And then you cool it so you can leave it overnight. So leave it till it's cool before you put it in the fridge. Then you can put it in the fridge overnight or for several hours. Take it out. Uh, put Have a knife or something delicate that you can put 
round to separate it from the bowl, from the, from the pot. Then you put a plate on top of it, you tip it over, and then you do a little movement, short, sharp movement, and you delicately lift off the pot and you've got your creme caramel with a beautiful sauce, caramel sauce. So the sauce won't set when it's been in the fridge overnight? It doesn't. Well, it shouldn't if you've done it properly. But what will happen at the end? At the bottom, and this is the bit that we like when we're kids, is at the bottom you will, on the on the ramekin, you'll have some toffee at the bottom. And that's the bit that's there. And that's the bit that we're allowed to eat as kids. This is what I remember most of all about the creme caramel is we could eat the toffee on the bottom of the dish. Why do you use a bain-marie? What's important about using a bain-marie? It's so that the eggs cook evenly. And apparently also it gives the kind of a, a moisture to the air. So it cooks evenly and so the the eggs don't cook too fast and so that they don't curdle. What was special about your mum's creme caramel that you've just given us the recipe for? Well, the main thing was us eating the toffee at the end of the <laughs> And it, I don't know, I just remember it because it's, it's very smooth and it's very light uh, and it's very delicate and very soft and very sweet. <laughs> There's a famed food historian, Alan Davidson. He is quoted as saying that the creme caramel occupied an excessively large amount of territory in European restaurant menus. I love Alan Davidson. Um, I want to look him up a bit more and find out what else he said. Was this the same in Australia? Do do you think it was something that was on all French menus? Uh, Well, it was definitely on our menu because mum would make the dessert, so she'd make uh, make mousse aux fraises. Strawberry mousse and uh, cheesecake and creme caramel. So it was on our menu and it was popular. But I don't. I mean, I think it depends on. They had a bit of an international crowd there, so they kind of knew a creme caramel. But I don't think everyone would know what a creme caramel did at that time. But it was quite a popular dessert in the restaurant. You would have found it in other French restaurants, but not necessarily in other in normal. You know, in non-French. Lovers of French food, wait no more, for I've got the French food cooking experience just for you. Come join me in Montmorel for one and three day cooking experiences that take in French markets as well as visits to local food producers and lots of cooking and eating, along with an occasional glass of wine. But above all, good company and lots of fun. Book your class with me via andrewpriorfabulously.com, but hurry, as places are gonna fill up fast. Well, they already are. So hurry. Uh, The French would say that they invented the creme caramel, but uh, I think that the Moorish might have something to say about that. But is it true that the history of the creme caramel is hard to track down? Um, I've read that it's uh, that they might the French might have even stolen it from the English. Heaven forbid, and they're custard. Well, uh, well, the the caramel is meant to come uh, from the Arabs because uh, they were experts in sugar. So it's meant to be around 1000 AD, but possibly a lot earlier. Uh, but then it came over with the Crusaders to Europe in the Middle Ages. Uh, and, you know, sugar was a very rare commodity uh, and, and expensive. And then uh, custard is called creme anglaise. Yes. So that suggests that, yes, indeed, it is English. I did take it from the English. That, I mean, I'm, hmm, I don't want to put my name for that, but that's what I heard, and it is Cook and Anglais. Uh, and 
it's apparently so it's it's also uh, a like a flan is a similar thing the same thing depend on what language you're using and uh, apparently a flan was served at the coronation of Henry the 4th in 1399 uh, with the recipe coming over from England apparently right well look i mean there's not the internet to for people to record things back then and put it on as fact you know, so hello. But then again, hello. We live in a time when fact is made up anyway. So who knows? We'll go with the apparently. Now, the Spanish, as you mentioned before, and actually some regions of France call it a flan, but the Spanish also call it a creme catalana. But they're not the only country to have a version of a creme caramel. How many different versions are there? There's lots. Yeah, well, how many? I don't know how long's a piece of tune. But there's many. Uh, but a couple that I found out about uh, in Croatia, they have a rosata. So it's like a creme caramel, apparently, with a rose liqueur. And mm, Sounds all right. Uh, in Portugal, they have a flan de pudim, which is, has an orange or lemon zest with cinnamon, uh, sometimes even pineapple, and sometimes has that hole in the middle. Uh, in India, it's very popular because there was uh, from the Portuguese colonies at the time because Portugal is cited as one of the possible origins. Uh, Japan and Taiwan, they have a thing which is like a creme pudding. Uh, and Malaysia, again, because of the Portuguese. And uh, they also even have it in Malaysia. They have it as a part of the Aid feast at the end of Ramadan. They even have some the Vietnamese one uses condensed milk. Yum. I love anything with condensed. In fact, I can just eat condensed milk out of the can. Oh, it just sits in the fridge. Just it's a guilty pleasure. Like, I don't know, going on girls, girl guide camps or something. With uh, with condensed milk cans, yeah. yes. I was not a girl guide, unfortunately, so <laughs> I don't have that same experience. I love Argentina's creme caramel version. It's served with dolce de leche and whipped cream. Now, that puts that plus the caramel and the custard. I mean, ooh la la. This is a, one of the tips that my mum gave me. She said, it, you don't serve it with anything else. And once that she made a creme caramel for, for for some occasion and then uh, a friend of my dad's and he went off and he came back with ice cream and she's like, no, you're not allowed. Because she said that it, the, the flavour of the creme caramel should be so fine and delicate and beautiful that it shouldn't need anything else. Uh, you could have it maybe with a coffee, I guess. You could, you, could, you could also have it maybe with a cognac if you, it was late at night after a meal. But uh, no bits and pieces. Where in Paris should we go to have the best creme caramel? You can get a pretty good car creme caramel in a lot of places around Paris. But I remember that I had a particularly good one at Le Grand Colbert, which is a beautiful Belle Epoque uh, restaurant that you'll see in lots of films. And it's also, which is part of one of the covered passage passageways, the restaurant is beautiful. Like just to be there and the experience of being in that restaurant is beautiful. So my my tip if you're going there, have an entree, have a, you know, kind of have a main. It might be, I mean, but definitely go big on the dessert. <laughs> Get the crown. Where can we find you, Ruby, on the internet? Uh, lots of things that I put up on Instagram, which is 
is Ruby TV, R-U-B-Y TV. Uh, my website is rubytv.net. The question that I ask everybody that's been on Fabulously Delicious, Ruby, what to you is the most fabulous thing about France? Uh, the most fabulous thing about France is that culture is in the DNA of everyone and it's not reserved for a, a fringe the fringe of the society or any part of the society. Even mechanics go to the theatre. You can talk about film to everyone. There's theatre shows all the time. There's music spilling out of the bars. Culture is part of everyday life and as important as anything else. Fabulous. Well, that's obviously why you fit in here so well in France because it seems to me that culture and food and everything else is uh, definitely a part of you. It seems like it's in your DNA. Ruby, thank you so much for enlightening us on the creme caramel today on Fabulously Delicious. It's been absolute pleasure. Merci beaucoup. Merci à toi. Merci, Ruby. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Ruby is a delight to chat with, and you can get all the links to her social media and website in the show notes of this episode, as well as links for her fabulous guidebooks, The Art Lover's Guide to Paris and The Architecture Lover's Guide to Paris, also in the show notes. That's it for another fabulous episode, and I'm so happy to be back in the swing of it after our summer series, which I hope you loved as much as I did. Merci beaucoup and see you next week. Bon app. Hello and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.